This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. As you guys know, I made a promise to only bring companies on as sponsors whose products I actually use myself and believe in, and LifeAid is no different. I've witnessed a huge reliance on energy drinks by our population, and I totally understand we are chronically fatigued. However, sadly, I've seen the ill effects that come along with these products, whether it's the cardiac arrhythmias and chest pain, the GI distress, the anxiety... And I wanted to find a product that we could use for the same effect, but that would nourish our body instead of harm our body. And that product is LifeAid. Uh, one of the things that really bolstered my belief in it was it's the chosen sponsor from the Spartan Race and the CrossFit Games, which I think are two arenas that have contributed very, very well to the health of our nation. But they've taken the natural supplements, whether it's turmeric and chamomile, the, the vitamin Bs, the, the glucosamines, and they've put them in the drinks so that they each one of them has an effect. My favorite one for us, the fatigued first responder military medical personnel, is the Focus Aid. And they've taken the nootropic supplements. So these are supplements that nourish the brain, that, that increase brain function without hypercaffeinating it and relying on sugar. What really appeals to me about this is A, it works. It tastes great as well, but more importantly, it works. You get this mental clarity that was amazing, but you can also unwind at the end of your shift, whether you go back to the station, whether you get off your rotation. Um, and that's important too, because not being able to sleep when you're in your recovery time is extremely frustrating. So you can access all these products at their website, which is lifeaidbevco.com. L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. But they wanted to reach out to you guys, our audience. 
And so they've offered one of two deals, either $15 off a case of Life Aid, which is a 24 pack, which brings the price down to under $2 a can. So you can work with your people in your ER or your station if you want to split it up. Um, the other thing, which actually is even better value, is the subscription, the monthly delivery that they have. You get 10% off, which brings that down even further. Both of those are also free delivery to your doorstep. So you can see there's almost a zero risk with this um, because they believe in their product. And I'm sitting here telling you because I do as well. So you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. And if you want to learn even more about this product, then listen to episode 207, where I interviewed the founder of LifeAid, Aaron Hind. Welcome, guys, to episode 250 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and I am so excited to welcome back to the show Master Chief Jason Gardner, who was my guest on episode 187. But this time, he brought with him Iris, his wife. And this was just an incredible conversation. Firstly, the diverse array of topics that we discussed was mind-blowing. Secondly, Iris is incredibly courageous in telling her very traumatic story of her early life but then we see all the incredible things that came out of it the healing the resiliency on top of their parenting philosophies uh, what it was like to be a military family just so many things I urge you to listen to this interview in its entirety before we get to the interview as I always say take a moment go to your podcast app that you listen to this on um, you can leave a rating subscribe leave feedback which I love to read but the more ratings the show gets, the more visible it is, the more it climbs this imaginary chart. And people looking for this podcast are then able to find it easier. And the other thing I ask is to share. That can be word of mouth, email, social media. But let people know about this. Each one of these guests, 250 episodes we've had now, have taken an hour, two hours, sometimes three or four hours to tell their stories. And my goal is to get these people's stories to everyone that needs to hear it around planet Earth and that involves you, the audience, helping me share. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jason and Iris Gardner. Enjoy. So Jason and Iris, I want to start by saying thank you so much. I'm so excited to to hear the perspective from both of you now. But um, yeah, initially, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Hey. Thanks, James. Yeah, thanks for having us. Right. And for everyone listening, Jason, you're on before uh, episode 187 for people. So if you want to hear that entire conversation, uh, I'd, I'd, normally I say I recommend listen to that first. I think these are going to be two very parallel conversations anyway. So, But that one is out there. Um, so geographically, where are we finding you right now? We are in northeastern Washington at our house. We're about two and a half hours north of Spokane, real close to the Canadian border. Brilliant. Okay. Um, so... I've done you know, Jason's kind of early life. I'd love to chronologically start with Iris for a little bit, if you don't mind, and then kind of bring it up to to where you guys met. So, Iris, where were, where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? Um, I was born in northeastern Washington, up here in the area we're at now. But when I was five years old, we moved down to the mountains of northern California, which is a incredibly rural area it still is there's still not electricity there um still just 
off the grid pretty much. But my dad moved down there. We moved down there with my family for my dad to be a miner, a gold miner. And um, really kind of unusual place for, let's see, we would have moved down there in about 1985. And no electricity, and not just for us, like the whole area doesn't didn't have any. So people... Some people use generators. Um, there was an old Pelton wheel that we had for a while that made some electricity. But for the most part, we were we were just off the grid. We grew. I grew up using kerosene lanterns, and um, you know, you you end up by default spending a lot of time outdoors in that kind of environment because there's not TV, there's no television. You're not you know, as kids, we didn't have even radio we didn't have really so no telephones um so it was a little bit unique in that in that aspect um and then my dad became a timber faller and um eventually got hurt falling trees broke his neck and his hip in 1990 and then we moved back up to northeastern washington after that but in the time that we were in Northern California, um, you know, real focus in my life was reading a lot, being in the outdoors, um, just whatever we could find to do for entertainment then, which wasn't a lot like it is now for kids. Yeah. Well, we're saying that though. So what did you do? Because I grew up on a farm, but it was definitely a hybrid. I, we had power and had access to mm-hmm. electronics as well. But I did spend a huge amount of time out there. My dad was a horse vet, so I was always helping him as well. What were some of the things that you did instead of updating your Facebook and watching Nickelodeon? <laughs> um, well, like I said, in the winter months when it was raining a lot, we would read a ton and I have a big sister who read to me a lot out loud when I was a kid and really cultivated a love for reading. Um, and then we raised pigs. So I spent a tremendous amount of time running wild with little baby pigs and pig piglets everywhere, which was a ton of fun when you're a kid. Um, and had a had a million animals. My mom's a bit of an animal collector. And so that was really our life was just engaged with animals um, and the outdoors. Just, you know, it's funny now I feel like parents are so protect over overprotective in a way of their kids as far as like not letting them out of their sight. Um, you know, <laughs> when we were pretty little, we were out out roaming the mountains, my sister and I and a few of our friends just for hours and hours on end, um, exploring, building forts, doing all of that stuff. You know, a lot of people have memories of doing that. And I feel like they're some of the best memories that people have from childhood. And we're like extremely cautious to let our kids have that freedom anymore, which, um, you know, there's a balance with it, obviously. You don't want to just completely neglect your kids, but it is an important part of developing independence as a child and carrying that into adulthood and confidence along with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing with being, you know, too protective is every time there's a situation, you run to help. 
And I think that, I mean, I remember, you know, like coming off my motorbike one time and really, really jacking myself up. And it was like, I've got to get myself back. You know, it is what it is. So I think that, yeah, there's, there's that fine balance between complete neglect and that, that forced independence that you get when you are out to fend for yourself. Yeah. Well, we all do better with a little bit of adversity and letting our kids experience a little bit of that, I think is definitely is going to build character and strength. Absolutely. Well, I know that in, in Jocko's, uh, podcast, you did mention, you know, some of the darker sides of, of your early childhood. So, um, yeah. you know, you'd mentioned that you were comfortable talking about that. So I, I would love to hear your kind of, um, you know, perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I happened to spend most of my childhood with a sexual predator living with my family or very in close, very close proximity to my family. It was um, essentially my parents' best friend who was an older gentleman, more of a grandfatherly type figure in my life. And, um, you know, he's, we moved, moved in with him when I was five years old and spent some time living in his house. And then he spent some time living with us as throughout my childhood, but he was there for most of my childhood and started preying on me when I was five years old. And, you know, that I had this sort of idyllic childhood with, you know, nature and animals and freedom. But along with that came this real darkness of dealing with somebody who was, who was, I I was exposed to constantly, who was really quite a prolific sexual predator. And that, you know, really left a pretty deep impact on my childhood. And I particularly struggled with it going into my teen years. Um, It made a lot of, I feel like I made a lot of bad life decisions and had a lot of depression and um, self-doubt and stuff based upon what I dealt with over the years from that. Yeah. What what do you think? I mean, you were obviously an extremely vulnerable victim of this predator and you know it's it's just heart-wrenching when you hear these stories and sadly there's been so many of these first responders that have been through abuse um you know how did you process that yeah well i mean yeah first responders particularly who have been through it themselves and then who also see it i'm sure in their jobs, you know, going, going into houses where things are pretty bad for kids sometimes, I'm sure. And, um, you know, processing it for me, I think it started when I was so young that I didn't really, I didn't even, I knew something was wrong, right? Like I really knew something was wrong and it was really terrible and it left this really horrible, icky, gross feeling in me all the time. And I hated it. And I do feel like I had a lot of sort of stress in my childhood from that. I remember just like, you know, trying to trying to 
get away from him all the time. Like he was always around and just these subtle little things that happen right in front of my family all the time that I, you know, I still to this day, I'm like, how, how could they not have realized what was going on? You know, always just like pulling me into his lap and patting me on the butt when I would walk by and just making these little comments that I feel like, I don't know if he was conditioning my family to just think that that was normal or what, but I think it happens all the time. Like that's how these people get away with what they do is they don't only, they don't only groom the child, but they groom the entire family. And, you know, (laughs) it, we really like to think of pedophiles and child predators as strangers. And that almost all the time is not the case. It does happen occasionally that it's a stranger, but most of the time it's somebody that's in a position of trust in your family, in your circle, um, at school, a coach, a a teacher, uh, a priest, a youth pastor, something like that. And that's, you know, the problem is that that's why it's so prevalent is because these are the people that we trust. And so we, we look past it, we don't see it. And so for me, as a, as a five-year-old, like, I felt like, you know, he said these, these words, which just, it kills me that this is what he said, and that it worked. But he, the first time he ever actually physically assaulted me, he said, you know, this is, this is really, this is something we need to keep between us. This is our little secret. Like that's what he actually said. And those words, you know, I'm a little kid, he's a grown man and him. And I, and I really think that these people, they're not, they're not stupid. Like there's a reason that they get away with it. They, they know the kids to, they know the kids that they can get away with it with. Because my sister and I grew up the same way in the same house and he didn't touch her and she was oblivious to it. And I think he knew that she was the kind of kid who was probably going to say something and I wasn't. And it's a very deeply manipulative and thought out process um, with pedophiles. So anyway, for me, as a, as a child, I just didn't, I didn't know what to do. You know, it was kind of just part of my life. As I, as I grew up, I never told anyone and it was just part of my life. And it really wasn't until I became a teenager that, and you know, by that point I had really basically gotten to a point where he never really got his hands on me. Um, I, you know, I, I developed techniques for avoiding him for, for always just moving, moving away. He would always try to, you know, corner me or get me somewhere alone. And I just, I knew his tricks by then. And so, um, but really coming into, you know, growing up a bit and it really started to bother me in a deeper way, I think as a teenager, because, you know, teenagers already have a lot 
a lot going on and a lot to deal with emotionally. And then sort of really this, what this was kind of coming into focus for me. Um, you know, I started to have a lot of, of issues of doing things like cutting and burning myself and being really depressed. And, you know, started when I was 15, I started dating a guy who was in his thirties. When I, when I was 16, I was dating a 32 year old cop um, you know, a really bad trajectory of stuff that can completely directly be linked back to this trauma from my childhood. Yeah. And the fact that a 32 year old cop would date a 16 year old is disgusting in itself. I mean, yeah, I, I'm all yeah. about age gaps. There's an age gap between myself and my wife. Um, but you have it's to. It's a little bit different when you're both adults. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Say again, Jason. Yeah, he he did eventually end up losing his job because partially because of that. But um, but but anyways, yeah, it's a you know again people that have a certain mindset I think see an easy victim, and I was an easy victim at that point. And you know, really, a thirty-two-year-old cop dating a 16 year old who's got a lot of trauma from their past is, is another victimizer. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's interesting. I've had so many people with, you know, mental health professionals on here and, you know, we talk about trauma. So for, for example, with you, with, you know, manifesting and cutting and, you know, kind of dating older people, which I'm sure, like you said, wasn't, it was an imprinting from, from earlier, this is all this trauma, but I've asked several of them about the pedophiles themselves and their, their reaction is basically, no, they're just fucked up. They need to be castrated. And it's, it's interesting because when you take a step back, you try and be compassionate, but I guess some of them are saying there isn't even a correlation between, you know, a lot of them and, and trauma in their early life, that this truly is a broken brain chemistry individual that just needs to be kept away from society, period. Yeah, and I completely agree with that. I don't believe I don't believe for a second that it's something that you fix. I mean, we have a lot of pretty strong studies about sexual orientation and stuff, and I think unanimously it can be agreed on that it's not something that you just fix. And pedophilia is the same thing. And ultimately, you know, if it were up to me, they would all be taken out of the gene pool. But that's not how it works. And since that's not how it works, they're in our society in a lot higher numbers than I think we like to acknowledge. And so we have to come up with some kind of a solution for that in order to keep this just epidemic from plaguing our children. And, you know... <laughs> It's it's something that we we look past really easily. And we, again, are always willing to look at, you know, oh, it's happening to strangers our, our danger, stranger danger. You know, that's what we teach our kids. Stranger danger. Don't talk to that person the out on the street that you don't know. And we're not spending nearly enough time educating our kids about the dangers that can be from people that we trust and I think you're doing your children a huge disservice to not talk to them about 
this stuff really early because it starts happening really early. You know, in my case at five years old, oftentimes a lot younger than that. And as soon as you can possibly start to educate your kid in the most basic ways of what is appropriate and what is not appropriate for an adult to do to you. What if you if you get this feeling that makes you feel a certain way from a from a grown up or if they tell you to keep a secret or, you know, things you need to be having these conversations with your children. They deserve to have a little bit of a chance to to know how to protect themselves when they're put in that situation. And on top of that, we all need to open our eyes a little bit because while you don't want to go around suspecting everyone you know of being a a child molester, the reality is that we all know some of them and we don't, we don't realize it, but we do. And how do we figure that out and how do we keep our kids safe? Yeah. And as first responders, I just had an amazing conversation with, uh, Todd Edwards, who's a firefighter up in Georgia, and he has a son who's on the autism spectrum, and he started educating first responders on how to how to, how to act around people in the autistic spectrum and, and with Down syndrome as patients, and you know, same with law enforcement. Um, and one of the, the key points that he talks about is they are huge targets for predators because they're sometimes they're nonverbal, you know, or, or they're not able to understand. So, and, and as, as a first responder, I, I kind of look back and kick myself. And the same even with the sex trafficking. I had Nick McKinley on, who was a CIA uh, agent who created a foundation to educate police officers on how to catch predators in that way. And, you know, how many of the people that I had in the back of my rescue possibly were being abused or were victims of sex trafficking? And until we're educated on what to look for, it's just another person. Oh, you know, they're just upset. Yeah, but why are they upset? Yeah, yeah, for sure. There definitely needs to be. It, it just it needs to be it's a topic that needs to be dug in a lot more. And I that's why that's why I'm speaking about it as someone who's been through it. Like, I feel like not nearly enough people talk about it. And it it becomes this really dark secret that, you know, the stats are one in four women and one in six, six or seven boys have been sexually abused as children. And that is a tremendously high number for us in, in, in a just an absolute epidemic for us to not talk about it openly. And so you've got just a ton of people, you know, we're talking about like how to protect children, but how about all the adults who are out there who have already been through this and they carry it with them their whole lives. And a lot of people never really learn to, to heal from it. And what does that do? And how does that perpetuate in not talking about it? You know, I know that my mother was a victim of sexual abuse as a child, and she never talked to me about it. Never, ever. And how does that happen? How do you go through it and not even talk to your children about it? And well, I mean, because there was a label of shame. Yeah. And and so people probably felt like they were a bad person. And so they were the shame was there and they didn't they didn't want to share it. And so but the thing is, when you hold things in like that, it's just it's toxic and it just poisons you. 
Um, yeah, it poisons you and it opens up the ground for, more, you know, the people around you to yeah. be damaged as well because you're not willing to talk about it. It takes, it's, <laughs> you know, when I first initially went on the Jocko podcast and shared my story, it it's not easy, but I had a very young daughter at that age. And I'm like, man, I'm not good. This isn't going to be me. I'm not going to be the person who just shuts up and lets this keep happening and wait for it to happen to my kid and then go, oh, well, gosh, that's terrible. And we all just keep not addressing it. And, you know, one of the things that I've come to realize that I really was kind of oblivious to before I did that very public uh, podcast episode with Jocko. And since then, I've gotten a tremendous amount of private messages from people who want to share their own stories. Because a lot of people, they want to talk about it, but they, they're not ready to go to go public with it. Um, their abuser maybe is still alive, their fam, you know, they don't know how their family's going to react. But what I've realized is that there's a much higher number of boys who have been sexually abused than I would have thought because I get probably 50% of the private messages sent to me are from men. And after reading a lot of these and listening to a lot of people's stories, I realized that I think men and women deal with the repercussions of this in different ways. I feel like women are a bit more, accepting of being labeled as a, as accepting that they're a victim as going this this person did this terrible thing to me and I'm a victim and I'm having a really hard time getting over it but I am a victim where I see men oftentimes it seems acting out with a lot more aggression and anger over it and feeling actually a lot more self-loathing and sort of disgust towards themselves because of what happened. Now, oftentimes, you know, definitely not always because there are women who are sexual predators, but oftentimes it ends up being a homosexual encounter for young boys. And that's a whole nother level of confusion to them to deal with their entire lives. And that's something that I think we also need to think about. It's easy to go, oh, you know, protect your little girls, keep your little girls safe. But this happens at a really high number to little boys. And, um, you know, for the men who have gone through that, like, I, I really, really encourage you guys to, to talk about it. It's, it's, sitting there just eating people away and I know it seems extra shameful I know for some reason you feel that deep guilt but as a child you are 100% a victim of your circumstances and there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of for having some horrible person do this terrible thing to you, whether it was one time or whether it was your entire entire childhood, it doesn't matter. It, it, if it leaves a feeling of revulsion in you over what happened, like you should not be ashamed of that. And can I jump in? Yeah. Yeah. And, and guys should understand that it's okay to cry. You know what though? 
you, you skin your knee, don't cry. But if you're dealing with some real horrible trauma and stuff, crying is a natural outlet to just vent off those that toxicity and that pain and you shouldn't be holding it in because it's not good for you and it's it's fine oh for sure i mean i'm not a i'm not a big crier i'm i'm big on like suck it up when it's when it's things that are kind of trivial to cry over but when you have been through trauma that truly affects you deeply like cry that sucker out it's a biological thing that we have to relieve stress and you know don't feel like less of a man because that's part of your way of getting it out right you know write it down share it with somebody like me if that if you're not willing to go out there and and speak publicly even to tell your wife or your kids or anyone in your family like write it down and share it with somebody like me who is a safe space for you to get it out there at least. I really, really believe that that is an important method to healing from this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's it's firstly the ratio, like you said, of men that have been abused. I had no idea as a, no idea as a well-traveled, you know, human, as a first responder, um, as an empath, I'd like to, you know, think I am the, so many men were, and you know, one of my close friends, Chad, who did a really courageous interview on here uh, about his alcoholism, was abused as a small boy, and you know, almost took his own life, and and was an alcoholic for many, many years. And when he, thank goodness, was able to find the you know the right combination of a good clinic and the right time, he's now you know well over a year sober, you know, not inundated, but you know, a good amount of people reaching out to him and now he's able to help those people so uh, like you said if you're able to be the the beacon then absolutely tell your story if that's not comfortable right now then reach out to one of those beacons that you see and tell and talk to them and you'll realize that you are not crazy and you are not alone yeah for sure and you know the the big thing for me when you asked like how how did you essentially work through this is like (laughs) If you let your entire life essentially be ruined by someone who did a terrible thing to you, whether that is looks like going down a long course of becoming an alcoholic or suffering from depression or whatever other forms it manifests in, in the way that you conduct the rest of your life. You're letting that person win. That person is winning when they affect and destroy the rest of your life. And the way to the way to take that, you've got to take the, your power back from them. You have got to look at it and go, I am not going to let you win. I was a kid. I was helpless. I was a victim. There was nothing I could do at that point in time. But I'm an adult now and I can now take back my own power and I can move forward in my life and I can be a good person and I can be a kind person and I can take, maybe you did a lot of terrible things, you know, because of, maybe you were kind of a bad person because of what this did to you in your younger days. It's never too late to change how that, how you are and to move forward and to 
fix it all by what you are with the rest of your life. And that's how you win. That's how you get over this stuff. And it's how you take away all the power of these evil people who, you know, that's their thing is to have power over children. And once you're not a child, boy, take that power back. Absolutely. I think as a society as well, that's why we have to look at the huge failure of our war on drugs, of, of the way we choose to do prisons and, and look at what took a lot of these young men and women to where they are now, whether they're addicts, where they, they turn to crime because, you know, the fixing issues like this and, and creating a rehabilitation program or focus with our drug policy, with our, you know, uh, prison policy versus just arresting everyone the moment they're ultimately manifesting signs of a shitty childhood and, and most likely a lot of trauma in their life. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I've heard a few people say that they don't, they feel like they can't say that they have PTSD because somehow PTSD has become this like kind of military exclusive. It's, thing. Yeah. Become kind of exclusive to like military trauma. And I mean, as all first responders, I think know, should know PTSD is not exclusive to the military. It is completely something that anyone who has suffered from trauma um, you know, is going to have and deal with. And so don't feel like I've had people say, Oh, I don't, I don't feel like I should have these feelings because I wasn't in the military. So I can't really say I have PTSD. And it's like, good grief. No, you can have PTSD from getting in a car wreck from, you know, anything's from any number of things happening. And certainly sexual abuse is one that is valid for saying, yes, I have PTSD from this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, just as a segue, when we were talking earlier, you kind of made me think of something else that I've observed for a long time here. And, you know, and, and it's funny because the British are known to have, you know, stiff up a lip and be a little uh, coy about certain topics. But actually, when it comes to sex, they're not as you know, stiff is probably a bad word to use when talking about sex, yeah. <laughs> but as, as people think, <laughs> but over, over here, you know, and I've, I've used this example before, you'll watch regular cable and some guy will pull out a machine gun and murder a hundred people, but then a woman's butt crack will be showing and they'll blur it out. Yeah. And I think that that's another element that's contributing to the inability to communicate is our our philosophy here on sex like it's this disgusting dirty thing and we need to get rid of that and stop yeah. having shame about sex in general which then will allow us to talk to our kids a lot more openly and hopefully prevent some of these things i think that's really correct and really important and another thing that i was just having a discussion with jason about last night was how many sexual predators and this is something that I've has come to my realization as people tell me their own stories, how many sexual predators are actually teenagers, boys and girls, which completely makes sense to me, right? Like they're, they're not a pedophile in the manner that we think of as like an older man taking advantage of little kids, but they, but teenagers are, they have raging hormones their brains aren't fully developed to make good decision making. Um, 
they're they and then their families never talk about sex. There's there's all the sexual oppression going on, and they make bad decisions. And and oftentimes that looks like maybe a slightly older kid doing sexually inappropriate things to younger kids that leaves really lasting scars on those younger kids. And you know what? It probably leaves scars on the kids who do it too, because they know they did it. And so how do we keep our own kids from becoming those, those teens who do, who do this and then probably have to, to live with both what they've done and what they've done to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, it's something I encountered recently, which was, again, crazy, was my, my little boy um, had been shown porn by his, uh, you know, technically his stepbrother, they're not married, but in, in the other household. An innocent thing. I mean, there's no blame on it at all, but um, yeah. it was about two years ago now, so he was only about 10. Um, but the, thank God, you know, he's very honest with me and he told me and, you know, was upset and I didn't jump on him because I'm like, well, okay, let's just talk about it. You haven't done anything wrong. It's not like you went and robbed a bank. Um, but then, you know, through his whole life, we've always talked about sex. Um, but he now is 12. We're at the point now, okay, we really need to kind of, you know, educate him a little more on the actual anatomy and that kind of thing before some complete ding dong gives him a, completely bastardized version of what it should be in some you know classroom somewhere um and so i turned to the internet all right let me find some scientific videos so that we can talk about the you know the anatomy of sex and there was nothing either ridiculously patronizing animations and people putting condoms on bananas or porn so that's Hmm. the other issue i see is when these kids are curious they are basically being driven towards the porn industry when yeah. they're curious about it. And and of course, you go to some porn videos. Yes, that's exactly how sex is. No one's yeah. choking anyone. No one's smacking anyone around. But God forbid you you enter the other 95% of this, this bizarre porn world. That, I think, is the other issue is some of these young men and women are thinking what they see there is what sex is supposed to be. And it's you know, of course, now, it's not. Let me ask you this. I mean, I, I, I know that there's a lot of books out because I have a good friend and that's how he discussed it with his teenage daughter. He, he went to Barnes and Noble and uh, he got a book on, you know, four kids on sex, basically, and had her read it. And then the next day they discussed it on a long car drive they were doing. And I thought, man, that was a really kind of smart way to open up a conversation, which I can remember discussing this stuff as a kid with my parents and I was immensely, and and I'm glad my parents discussed, had these talks with us, but it's super uncomfortable with, for you as a kid. So that was kind of an interesting tool, Um, you know, but being from the other side of the pond there, what, what, what is, uh, what is the British outlook on uh, pornography? Um, So, being generationally challenged, um, you know, I'm <laughs> 45 years old now, like when I was young, I remember it was just the magazines then because we didn't have the internet. So I really couldn't say what it is now. Um, I would hope it was better. I know, for example, just as a, as a side note, I lived in Japan for a year and a quarter and another culture, at least back when I lived there, that was very suppressed when it came to showing emotion. You know, you didn't ever 
talk back to your superior in whatever company you work for. They didn't really, I mean, to the point where you'd walk down the street and they would knock into you because they literally almost didn't acknowledge other people when they were walking by. It was bizarre. But then some of their animation, their their uh, comics were extremely violent sexually. And then when they would drink, and I'm generalizing in the whole country, of course, but you know, when some of the my coworkers would drink, they would get absolutely shit faced. You know, so I think that that suppressing really does. I mean, there's absolute correlation between you suppress things that are supposed to be discussed and some pretty bad byproducts that are just like under the surface. There, yes, I, I was I was kind of kind of surprised in my visits to Japan. Um, at, at how kind of sexually explicit the the uh, a lot of the comics that you could just buy off the street were, and while they always blotted out the uh, sexual organs, you, you could still tell what was going on, um, and it seemed like there was a widespread rape fantasy going on over there. Anyhow, so the books are good, like. For young kids particularly, there's some really great books out there. And it's an e- a, a quick Amazon search will bring up a lot of stuff. But there are a lot of really good books tailored towards young kids that basically talk about – I think we have a couple. One is called like um, – oh, shoot. I'm drawing a blank right now. But um, this is my body. A couple different things. And it's basic – they're basically about – boundaries with kids and what not to do and what not to let other people do and red flag stuff that's like this you know when you see something or feel something that's not right how to react and I highly recommend that people it's a great way to bring up this stuff in conversation with your kids my kids actually really enjoy when we read these books they start talking to me about all kinds of stuff and they're like well what if this and what if that and it's really engaging and um because a lot of times parents just don't know where to start you know they're like well my kid's only five what i'm not going to start talking about sex to them and i mean you can if you want to in ways Um, but the, there's a lot of books that really do a great job in like talking about it without making it really graphic and uncomfortable for anybody. And once you can start to have that dialogue, then it becomes really easy. And a lot of people make the mistake of having like the talk, right? They wait till their kid is like 14 years old and then they have the talk with them Mm. that. You, you've completely failed at that point by doing that. You, it, this needs to be an ongoing dialogue from the time your kids are young until they're, you know, however old enough that they're sexually active themselves and kind of, and even then, like they should still be able to have conversations with you. And I think it's, Like you said, why Americans seem to have such a hard time with this, I'm not sure. But it is really a large part of the problem is that we just refuse to discuss it. We refuse to acknowledge it. And then when something does happen, everybody feels just just tremendous amount of guilt and shame over it. And that's what we need to start to change. And, you know, when you're talking to your kid, too, one thing that happened to me when I was 
actively being sexually abused is I remember at one point my dad came to me and asked me if the man who was abusing me had ever touched me inappropriately. And this stemmed from another woman claiming that she had caught him doing something with a little girl that she was taking care of at the time. And she was kind of disreputable and nobody really wanted to believe her. And I remember my dad coming to me and saying, hey, you know, I need to talk to you about something. Um, Has he ever done, has he ever touched you anywhere inappropriately? And I was like a deer in headlights at the moment. Like no one had ever talked to me about this. And I had never considered telling anybody. And so my dad asked me this and I'm just like, immediately, I'm just like, no, no, he, no, gosh, he hasn't done anything to me. And as soon as I said that, I'm like, oh, why did I say that? Like, this is my opportunity to say something. But my dad, you know, was uh, as any parent would be, it was like, oh, thank goodness. You know, he's really happy to get that response. And then that was it. Conversation closed because I'd said, no, nothing happened. And they basically chose to not believe the woman who had made the accusations that she must have just been making something up. And, you know, another that was probably when I was like nine and you know, another nine years of my life went by with him continuing to be a sexual predator in my life because I didn't, I wasn't prepared at the time to talk about it and I was caught off guard and it was just let lie after that. And so I really encourage people, like if you have these conversations with your kid, if you all of a sudden are like, I'm going to ask my kid if someone has ever touched them inappropriately, don't just ask them once, please ask them once and then give it like a day and then ask them again. Be like, hey, is there, you know, remember what we were just talking about yesterday? Do you have any more thoughts on that? Is there anything else that you you think about? You know, ask them and then wait a week and ask them again. Like it takes time for kids to think this stuff over in their heads and decide whether or not they want to tell you. And if you just blindside them with something, chances are they're not going to tell you. If they haven't right after it happened, they're not going to a month or a year or six years later. And so that's one of the things that I really encourage parents to do besides getting some books and really starting to discuss this is if you ask your kids, don't take their don't take their no at, at face value and just be happy with that. I mean, don't try to pry something out of them, obviously, that didn't happen, but give them some time to process how they might want to tell you if um, if something has happened. I mean, the best thing you can do to uh, protect your kids is not to make to, to make them be. Uh, not easy victims. And so if you have discussions with them and they're open on talking with you, uh, they're not going to go through the grooming process probably. And, and well, there are, yeah, they're a lot less likely. Less to. likely. And I think if you've already talked about sex and sexual abuse and acknowledge that that stuff happens with your kids, if something does happen or if someone tries something with them, they're a lot more likely to come to you and tell you. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I really couldn't. And I think that's the other thing is your reaction to everyday things. You know, if it's if they bring something to you that's related to sex and you blow up, well, then they're probably not going to come to you with things that might actually be, you know, extremely important. But if if you if everything is in perspective and of course, if they do something horrible, then you're going to be angry. But, you know, if, if it's something to do with sex or, or, or you know, that kind of thing, um, like with my little boy with the porn. And you just, you know, calm and say, well, hey, I had to talk to him about the porn and why there's some things that will show you what it's like and a lot of things that will basically be violence. And like you said, rape. Um, But you keep that line of communication open, but they're not going to come to you if you explode every time, you know, they tell you something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And use those times as an as a opportunity. You know, something like that happens use that as an, you know, okay, well, the conversation's open now. Let's talk about it. Don't just say, oh, that's terrible. Don't watch it and leave it at that. Like that's a perfect opportunity to dig in deeper and have deeper conversations with your kids about this stuff. Absolutely. All right. Well, just uh, while we're on the subject, the book that I bought for Ty, because you mentioned books and I did, we, we found a book in the end that was great. And it was called It's Perfectly Normal. And it even covered like same sex relationships and, and that kind of thing, because mm-hmm. you know, it's written oh, for funny. humans. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and they have two for younger kids. One's It's So Amazing, which I think is during pregnancy. And then one, It's Not the Stalk, I think for younger kids. So, um, yeah, there are some very well-written books out there, and there are some horrible ones. So <laughs> you got to make sure you find a good one. Yeah, yeah. that too. I got to look up the ones that I, that we have because they're they're really good, and um, I should have their names on hand. Brilliant. Well, when you uh, when you do, send them to me, and I'll put them on the show notes for this episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, then I want to um, address one more area, and then obviously bring Jason in a lot more again. Um, but I just had that clinic with Buck Brannerman. Um, who, oh yeah yeah which is amazing we haven't finished it yet we did about 45 minutes and uh, I was like we got so much more to talk about so uh, the after Thanksgiving we're going to finish up the episode but um, tell me about horses and how that factored into you you know physically getting away from this person and then and then the healing side as well yeah um, well I kind of caught the horse bug when I was probably like five years old I remember some neighbor rancher like stopping by and let me get up on their horse and I just immediately fell in love with horses and wanted one just desperately my entire childhood and um I finally got my first horse when I was 12 which I had I had a lot of freedom with that because we lived out in a really rural area in the middle of nowhere and my parents basically just turned me loose with this horse. They weren't horse people. And so I, you know, had this horse and I just wanted to ride. And so it's like, well, okay, off you go to ride. And I was 12 years old and, you know, they gave me a gun because, which seems fun. You know, a lot of people are like, oh my God, you gave a 12 year old a gun. But where, where we lived, it, it actually made sense because I'd been raised around them and, you know, was competent with, with one and wasn't a danger with one. And it's actually quite important to be able to protect yourself out here because there's a lot of mountain lions and, um, you know, things that can happen. And so I basically had a horse and a gun and spent a tremendous amount of my teen years 
riding the mountains alone. That gave me this real escape from this man who was still just completely in my life. And, um, you know, with that came a lot of sort of more self-confidence and um, just this deep, deep love for horses and and the mountains, um, all of which I think ultimately came around to really help with me healing over everything that I dealt with. Yeah, because I know Bucks, you know, obviously his his childhood was very physically abusive, and men- yeah, mentally as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, And it's interesting the way Buck's childhood was where he had that real abusive father, but then he understood this real gentle way. You know, they don't break horses. They gentle them. He builds a bond. He establishes rapport with uh, his horses, which is really cool because he broke that cycle. And breaking these cycles is something that we have to do where, you know, a lot of times kids that are abused will grow up to abuse their own kids. And we, we've we got, and I think we're getting better at it as a society, as everyone communicates, because that's what cleans everything up. You want to clean this stuff up? We, we communicate with each other in, in open terms, and then we're able to break some of these cycles and get out of these, these negative loops. Yeah, absolutely. And he talks, I mean, his grandparents, he said, were were sweet. And it was interesting because I'd never heard Buck talk about his brother before. And we did get to that point. Um, we pretty much got up to the point where he started writing. Um, but he said his brother was kind of the opposite. He ended up being just, the way he described it, he, he never seemed happy. So he kind of stayed broken. But, but Buck didn't let the trauma that he grew up in alter the kindness that was within him and that's i think what resonated him with him with the horses was he as you said he realized that kindness carried over to being a horseman as well Mm -hmm. yeah for sure right well then let's transition a bit i want to kind of fast forward now so um i would love iris to hear your version of when you guys met because i've already heard jason's and then then we'll obviously (laughs) carry on from there as far as you know the the marriage and then parenting yeah well after high school i went and worked on a number of ranches throughout the west as a horse wrangler um working cattle ranches and dude ranches um basically taking people on rides doing cattle stuff um and ended up working on a ranch in Washington that the SEAL snipers trained at. And um, so I met Jason there when I was a horse wrangler, taking him out on rides with the, the all these SEAL snipers. And I had no military background whatsoever. So while I was like, okay, these are military guys, I the Navy SEAL thing really didn't mean anything to me. I didn't really even know what they were, you know, okay, they're somebody in the military. Um, but Jason and I just kind of clicked pretty quickly. I think we really realized that we had a lot of things in common and, um, you know, he was very direct with me and showed a lot of adoration from the very get go, which I appreciated just his frankness and his intentions, which essentially was to make me his wife. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, worked perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, it, it, 
it was a hard decision for me because I it meant if I was going to go be with him, it meant leaving my like beautiful mountain home where my horses run wild on thousands of acres and um, moving down to Southern California. And ultimately, I decided to take a risk because, you know, what is life without some big risks? And, um, you know, it's been it's been just an amazing life that we've built together. And what was that transition to San Diego like from the mountains? Well, so I went down, we just, I went down without my horses initially, and we lived just right on the beach in San Diego, essentially for about six months. Um, and that was kind of culture shock to me, you know, everything was very, I just, I knew that that's not, that wasn't me, that wasn't my life. But Jason deploy had to deploy after that. So I went back to the ranch that I was working on um, when I met him while he was deployed. And then once we got married, I was just like, hey, we need to have, I need to come down. If I'm going to move my horses down, I need a place where they can be right outside the door, you know, in a pasture running free, not in a stable somewhere where I have to drive someplace to go see them occasionally when I have time. And, you know, Jason, pulled a lot of strings to make that happen. We ended up renting a place with eight acres for a while, um, kind of in East San Diego. And then within a couple of years, we had bought our own 18 acre place um, just East of San Diego. And that's when, you know, by then we had five horses and we started a farm there. And, but it, it ultimately came down to, moving to San Diego, moving to San Diego and living in the city was not my life. And if that's what I had tried to do, ultimately we would have failed, but we made a lot of compromise and adjustments to our lives to make sure that, um, you know, we could have what was important to me. And it fortunately aligned with what Jason actually wanted to. And so it's all been great. Brilliant. Now, you kind of made me, me think, you, you remind me a lot of Amanda Marsh, and she is the widow of Eric Marsh, who's one of the 19 uh, firefighters killed in Prescott, Arizona, a few years ago in 2013. Okay. Um, yeah. But, you know, she was already a very independent horsewoman as well. Um, what was it like when when you were married and Jason did deploy? Was it Was it a big shift, or were you so used to being independent already that you were comfortable with it? Well, I'd certainly never been... Through, well, I can't say I wasn't through a deployment. We actually got married in the middle of a deployment um, that in Guam. Um, I got married Jason in Guam. Got, did you? Yeah. <laughs> nice. My first one. Beautiful, nice. beautiful place to be married. Um, yeah, he had he had like 10 days leave and we got married um, in Guam, which was awesome. But so I'd kind of been through a deployment, but really once we sort of settled into our life and, you know, his second deployment was a pretty, pretty rough deployment um, for him to Afghanistan. And so for me, yeah, it was it was different. It was it was just this different thing that I hadn't dealt with before. And I am pretty independent. And I, you know, completely launched into starting a organic vegetable farm, which um, gave me a lot to keep myself busy with and focus on. But man, I knew he was having a rough time over there. And 
Um, you know, it's it's hard to not let yourself get get drawn into the worry of that at times. You know, I would give myself I remember that initial really hard deployment of there were times where I would just kind of get this wave of sickness over me, you know, where I'm like, what if he doesn't come home? What if or what if he comes home and he's completely destroyed? You know, he's disfigured. He's list, he's an amputee. You know, what what is this going to look like for us? And it's hard not to let that stuff get into your head when you have a husband who's in a, you know, severe combat zone. But my way of dealing with that, basically, aside from just keeping myself really busy and doing something, you know, that I wanted to be doing was I would give myself like five minutes to just feel sorry for myself, you know, to just go really dig into it and feel sorry. And then I, I just would tell myself, all right, that's enough. This isn't going to happen. This isn't, there's nothing you can do. He's highly trained professional. He's with other highly trained professionals you know, he could die in a car accident on his way to the to get a haircut when he's home. And you just don't know when your time is up and you can't fixate on that. And so that was sort of my way of dealing with that was was just giving myself this this little bit of time every once in a while to really kind of wallow a little bit. But then to know that I had to pull myself out of it pretty quickly. Right. Now, now, Jason, from your perspective, when, when you were newly married, what was your, you know, view of the whole thing? Oh, I couldn't believe my lucky stars that I tricked her into marrying me. <laughs> so, you know, that's why I was like, hey, OK, it was a, a 45 minute commute one way to work when we had eight acres. And then it was an hour and 10 minutes one way um, when we had the 18 acres. But it worked and so it was good to go and and if you talk to any of my friends in there or or in, if you look at the trajectory of my career it, it I was just kind of muddling around not really accomplishing much i didn't make e7 until i was like 15 years in and then that's right about the same time that iris and i met and then my career skyrocketed because my home life was completely squared away and I was happy. I didn't ever have to look over my shoulder and wonder, hey, is everything okay back there? Because I knew she had it. And so I advanced from E7 to E9, promoted first time every time I was up for promotion. And, and it correlates directly with the same time that we met. And uh, at that point in my career, I, I did a lot of deploying. We, Iris did like uh, almost half of my deployments are in that last 10 years of my career. So that, that was good. Now, did, it, did anything change as far as how you were when you were out there? Cause I know as a few, a few uh, members of the military I've had on that, you know, they, they almost got to a point where they were being reckless when they're out there. They kind of had to hold themselves back and realize, okay, it's time to, it's time to get back to my family. Now did, did, you know, finding a true soulmate changed the way you were as as a, a sailor out there. Uh, no, 
So you compartmentalized it too. I, still, I, I was, I was still, I still wanted to be at that point of friction, and there's like, there's no way I would have said, that, yeah, I'm not going on this op. Now I've always been aware of, you know, I've been careful, so I, I, I've never had a propensity to be too reckless, I guess. So I wouldn't have done anything that you would call, you know too silly and it was something that like in the moment I wasn't ever scared because training would take over but there were lots of moments where you know I'd be laying in my rack in in between you know operations and it's quiet and and I would you know let my mind go to a bad place and I, I could picture that sedan coming down our long dirt driveway with three people two people from the command in their blues and the chaplain to 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 make notification and could see that image of you know i i was collapsing when when you know they tell her that something happened to me or or picture myself in a wheelchair sitting outside the fence looking at my horses but never ever to ride them again and those those were thoughts that would haunt me but then next day just put my boots on and get back after it you know yeah it's interesting how you know, you have to compartmentalize it. Even for us, even though it's a 12 or 24 hour shift, um, you know, when you got a job to do, you adore your family, you're thinking of them. But, you know, when, when the bell goes off, it's, it's, you got to stay in the zone. And I remember speaking of Jocko, the story he tells of when he would Skype his family, he would put the pictures on his locker in the background. And then when he was done Skyping, he'd pull them back off again. Yeah. I didn't work like that. I had my pictures up all the time. He has a different way of dealing with it. And he, um, uh, when I was deployed, I talked to Iris at least three days a week because I, whenever I had the opportunity to, and uh, it was really a good thing for our relationship. It, and it helped me just take a break from deployment because, yeah, we were in a war zone, but I could carve out 10 minutes, 20 minutes every other day to, to call her and talk to her. And, and one thing I've learned is that I've gained a lot as a leader by sharing some things I'm dealing with and getting her perspective on things because she'll look at stuff a, a different way. So I'll say, hey, here's what's going on and, uh, and, and, and get her feedback on, you know, hey, what's your opinion on working with this individual or in this situation? And it, it's been helpful because it offers a different perspective. And when the more perspectives you have, the, the better off you are. Well, I also think part of what works so well for us is, you know, while some men like feel like the right thing to do is to shelter their wives from anything difficult that they're going through. Jason and I function 100 percent as a team. We run everything through by each other. You know, we're always bouncing all of our ideas off of each other where where everything you know not in a codependent kind of way of like you know oh you need to call me constantly so I can talk to you it's more like we respect each other tremendously and you know look at each other as as peers essentially and somebody that you would want their opinion on what you're dealing with in life and you know that's that's worked really well for us yeah and when jason was talking about that before i think it was in the last 
conversation we had, he did talk about the you reading the emails, and it reminds me a lot of of my my wife now, my second wife, who you know the first one I have no no regrets at all. I mean, I have a beautiful, healthy young man out of it, perfect. You know, everything, all the bad stuff is irrelevant. But with Becky, both of us parallel the things that we've done since we've met, just like you were talking about when you started promoting. Um, it's the same thing. And I've, I've written, you know, things that I've put out on the internet and she's proofread every single one of them, you know, because I value her opinion, you know, and, and a lot of times she'll be like, no, it's good as it is. Sometimes she'll give me input and I'll change it. But I think that's the thing is the power of two people who truly are a team and a partnership and in, in a marriage. Um, you know, as you guys say in the special forces is a force multiplier and, and you're c- both capable of rising up together. But if there's friction and those two, you know, two individuals are working against each other, then it creates all this undue stress that you see, sadly, in I think a lot of marriages. James, that exact same thing you just discussed happens here. No, I do not like post every day. Every day. I do not post anything. <laughs> without her looking at it and, and giving me feedback on it. Um, and then when I'm traveling and I'm posting stuff, I text it to her because, you know, sometimes she's like, that's good. And other times she's like, yeah, you sound a little bit goofy here. And then clearly I need help with my grammar. So she cleaned that up for <laughs> me too. But it, it's important if you're really honest about wargaming and you want feedback, you then you need to accept it. You need to be humble and accept the feedback and then step back and and it, it's just going to make everything that much more resilient and better. Well, and that's that's what you should have in a partner. I mean, a lot of people go through their lives kind of miserable in their relationships and they just gut it out because they think that's what they're supposed to do. But, you know, ultimately your spouse, your partner should be making you better all the time and and you should be a really strong team all the time and have each other's backs and that's that's ultimately you know what you're looking for in a relationship yeah and then we'll get to parenting next what your kids see is what they're ultimately going to manifest in their relationships and you know becky and i be married together for or been together excuse me for seven years coming up um, and we're still, you know, as physical as we ever were. So the the message, you know, subconscious message that Ty gets and, and Ethan, her son, is that when you're with a woman, you treat them well, you know, you're affectionate to them, you know, you're respectful to them, you, you pull your weight in, you know, in the house and all these other things. But sadly, if there isn't that message, then, you know, you're, you're telling a different story to your kids and they're going to have those expectations when they grow up. Yeah, and some some people, despite having really bad examples, still manage to pull themselves through it and go, well, I'm never going to be the way my dad was towards my mom or whatever. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people do have that as their expectation. Now, some people, some people learn from the things that they didn't like. But, man, you just give your, leg, your kid a leg up in the world if you can set a good example from the start. Absolutely. And it's happiness. You know, I mean, if you're in a good relationship, you're going to be happy. If you're in a bad relationship, it's awful. So, you know, I always say there's millions and millions of people on this planet. You know, if, if it's a relationship that you just need to work at and save and maybe even change your work environment that's maybe contributing to 
the breakdown of your marriage, then that needs to be done. But if you just, that relationship has just expired and it's time to move on, then do that, you know, go, don't be miserable the rest of your life. Go find the person who's going to make you happy. And obviously in turn, you're going to make them happy. You know, and, and, and interesting, well, here's what I'll lay out on top of that. If you're not happy in your relationship, the first place you need to start with is yourself and ask yourself, well, what can I do better? Because if, if you're not humble, if you're not sharing your emotions with somebody, if you're resentful and jealous, you're going to receive that back threefold. And so maybe there are people that aren't happy where they're at with their partners. And hey, try try on some humility and some empathy. Try and put yourself in your partner's position and see what's going on. And before you break away and you're absolutely right. There, there's a point where you're just like, this isn't working. We are not a good combination and people should split up. But uh, um, I think for a, a lot of people, if they start internally and fix themselves, that'll clean up a lot of the, the stuff that's happened externally. Absolutely. So you're saying they need extreme ownership? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I talk about that quite a bit. But there are some relationships that just can't be fixed. Nope. And if that's the case, then don't don't waste your life away just trying to to gut it out through something that's not good for either one of you. Because if you're not happy, the other person isn't happy either. Yeah. And and I think you know, I talk about expiration dates. It's okay to say this relationship lasted for two years. Great. Yeah. Okay. Then, then it's time to move on. But don't. Then it doesn't mean it's a failure. No. If either of you come out of it, you know, better in any way, like, or you just spent those years together and you learned something from it, that it doesn't mean that you failed. It's just, it's just part of your life, and you move forward from it. Absolutely. All right. So, well, then going from marriage to to parenting. So, had you guys kind of talked about a philosophy for raising your kids before you had them or did it kind of evolve from the first few years? Well, I think it's completely evolved. I mean, you know, we both had had ideas about things, but you the the one thing you learn about parenting, I think, when you think before you have kids, you've got it all figured out, right? And as soon as you have kids, you realize you don't know the first thing and you're just completely screwing everything up and just trying to hang on for the ride. So, you know, it's something that just develops as you go. It, it's something, too, that in the last several years, and it's a result of, you know, listening to podcasts and all the other things that we're doing and having open conversations in that we're actually like looking to improve, like where, how can we do this better or what is our end state? And so it was very recently here where we decided to sit down and have a discussion like, okay, what are our goals as parents? Where, where, what do we want to do? And, and we came up with, we want to raise kind, confident, competent adults and then we're now we have that agreed upon now we can back up and we can apply how we deal with our kids on a day-to-day basis based on that being the thing and one of the things that you know we're going to do is try not to solve all of their problems for them so that they're like 
when they get out in the real world, it's a big obstacle course. I can start out by helping them over the obstacles initially, but then I got to let them go out and try and get over those obstacles on their own. And, uh, it's important to do that. It's important to, uh, you know, they're going to learn more from us by the example that we set than the things we say to them. And they're going to model their relationships based on how the two of us treat each other. So that's stuff we want to be real careful with. Um, one thing I struggle with is, is, uh, you know, just not yelling at them all the time. And sometimes there's a, you, you, there, there are times when there's urgency involved that you got to yell at your kids like, you know, hey, get out of traffic or put down the cat. But there's there's a lot of other times where, unfortunately, my default mode is to just go, hey, you know, and bark at them. And and then I'm just teaching them to yell about everything. So it's like, OK, like, I got to take a step back from that and say, come here, Um You've, you've had enough time on the iPad. I need you to listen to me when we're telling you to, to, to put it down, put it down. Let's go do something else. And I'm modeling, you know, being in control of my emotions and and good behavior. And communication. I mean, yeah. you know, you're not communicating with somebody when you're just yelling at them. Yeah. You're just yelling at them. Communication is having a dialogue. And so that, you know, kids kids can be tough. They'll, they'll get on your every last nerve and really like bring out sides of you that you really don't like about yourself sometimes. And acknowledging that and being, being conscientious of it and trying to rein yourself in when you need to. Um, kids are just like this daily exercise in patience. And um, it's a, it's a good thing. I think if you can survive it and do it well, then you're going to be a, a much wiser person because of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now you talked about kindness. Um, that's when we started talking before we started recording that kindness and gratitude were like the two tenants that I found myself, you know, teaching when it came to, to tie. And, and it was crazy because everything kind of scales back to those two principles and I remember vividly, I had to go to a local community college and take a, it was some crappy math test or something. Um, and Ty had to sit outside the window. I could see him, but he had to sit out there while I took this test because I was a single dad. And at the end, a lady came over and said, can you tell me what you do to discipline your child? Do, do you smack him? You know, what is it that you do? And I said, uh, no, I literally just teach him that whatever he's doing, whatever actions are, are they kind? You ask, ask yourself that question. And she was absolutely blown away. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking like he's an angel and does everything right. But when, when kindness is the core of what you do, then everything just stems off that. So, you know, you, you don't raise a bully if you teach a kid to be kind. You raise the kid that protects the bully, that steps, I mean, excuse me, protects the, the victim from the bully. You know, when it comes to animals, when it comes to even understanding his own body, is, is what you're putting in your body kind to your body or are you going to create disease? And and it's it's kind of mind-blowing to me that like so many things in life, we've overcomplicated parenting in a way where, like you guys said, the kind, confident, and uh, competent kids, they're very, very basic principles that will cover pretty much all the solutions to the, you know, the issues that we have raising them. I think a lot of times in the past, um, 
kindness in raising kids, kindness kind of equated softness in people's minds. You know, don't raise your kid to be too nice or they'll be soft. And I think the one thing that is not true is that kindness and softness don't generally go in hand in hand. You know, it's generally confident people who are really capable and not soft are the most kind people a lot of the time. Um, you know, they don't have the insecurities and things that often drive people to being unkind. And so by making your child kind, you're not doing them any sort of disservice. No, I agree completely. And then, and then, you know, the whole phrase of don't mistake my kindness for weakness, that's when the other side comes in. Like you said, you're, they're out playing, they're, they're falling over, they're grazing their knee, they're, you know, doing jujitsu. And that's what gives that toughness that goes along with the kindness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not like you're one and not the other. And I, I, I think it, it, it takes the greatest strength to return rudeness someone's rude to you it takes more strength to be polite back to them and that's how you should be is is uh is kind and polite not only to others but it's very very important to be kind to yourself too and that's one of the things that's really helped me a lot i just just with the, the constant aggravation that I suff- suffered from for, for a long time or just see, I feel like I'm easily aggravated. And, and an aspect of that is just beating myself up. Um, and then when I look in the mirror and want to be myself, you know, say, okay, Jason, here's things that you can fix. I'm thinking about those things that I can fix and not holding myself in contempt and saying I'm a bad person but I've done these bad things and separating out the shame you know like hey you should have done you know a harder workout today or worked out at all today or you shouldn't have eaten that chocolate cake or whatever you know um and so putting that kindness filter on how you treat others but it's 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 real important to apply that to yourself yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And then it is, it's, it's funny the, how brutal the self-talk can be. And I think in our professions collectively, um, you know, we're responsible for so much. Lives are at stake. So you can put a lot of pressure on yourself and feel like you haven't done enough. And then, and then God forbid a team member dies, a patient dies, whatever it is, that then opens the door to that huge amount of guilt that you fail. Mm-hmm. Yep. Don't be too kind to yourself, though, because if you tell yourself it's okay to have that piece of chocolate cake every single day, that's not that's not actually being kind to yourself. No, well, that's not what I meant. I yeah. meant not carrying shame over your actions. I, I mean, it, it's like we were, you know, we've said before. It's it's that stoic philosophy where you you're just absolutely brutal with the critique that you give yourself, but you don't hold yourself in contempt. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, then, speaking of, of, of still the, the parenting side, um, you wrote that beautiful letter promised to my daughter. So I'd love to hear yeah. kind of, you know, the events leading up of what made you write that. So it was something that I was really struggling with. And it's something that I see where I feel like a lot of times 
people reinforce weaknesses in their daughters. They like kind of train them to, to act like they're scared of bugs or fear is cute. Fear is cute and things like that. And then some of the, just listening to Jordan Peterson and stuff, I'd been thinking, well, how am I going to apply this to my daughter? And I don't, I want my daughter to be tough and independent. Um, and so I was, you know, I was thinking about just what my philosophy was and, uh, put it all together one day in the parking lot of, uh, um, Costco and wrote it down and then ran it through Iris and we tweaked it and, put it together and, and, uh, here, here's what I came, came up with basically in, in bulletized fashion, a promise to my daughter. I will love you unconditionally always, no matter what. I will not pamper you. This will forge a resilience that will help you conquer all of life's obstacles. I do not intend to raise a princess, but rather a warrior with fire in her heart and ice in her veins. In my mind, there is nothing you can't do, no job or goal beyond your reach. I will challenge you so that you can stand confidently on your own two feet, independent and strong. I will set the example on how to treat those you love so that when you choose a partner, it will be someone who lifts you up. I will invest my time and energy in you so that when I am gone, enough memories of me will be there with you in your heart to keep forever. Stand tall with your shoulders back. This world is yours for the taking. And that's it. You know, and then what it reminded me of, I had a, a gentleman on uh, Javed Abdelamim. I always struggle saying his last name probably. I apologize, Javed, if you're listening. But he did a BBC documentary on gender identity. You know, and at first you're like, oh, this is when they say they want to identify with a chair. And it's like, no, it's when you tell a little girl that she's supposed to like ballet and wear pink all the time. And so that yes. really resonated with me because I took a step back and like, you're right, you know. The, the boys are supposed to play football and baseball. The girls are supposed to pick flowers and chase, you know, butterflies. And, and it's, it's ridiculous. Both are supposed to find joy in everything. Mm hmm. I, I absolutely concur with you 100%. And that, and so I, I would never, I don't ever want to get in a, in a position where it's like a, you know, I don't teach my daughter how to change a tire or change the oil on a car or how to shoot or anything like that. I want her to have all those experiences and I, and I want her to be comfortable and know that I'll love her forever. You know, that there's, there's not a gender in here. Um, so that's why I said, you know, partner versus husband or boyfriend, because I don't know how she's, what, what her deal is going to be. And it doesn't matter. Well, and Women have just been conditioned by society forever to believe that they're less capable than they are, you know, to to believe that they're I mean, just in general terms, they're ref females are re referred to as the weaker sex now physically. OK, for the most part, you know, there are exceptions, of course, but women are physically less strong than men generally. Um, but man, 
how do you how do you rate strength? Because you have these women that are like blowing away the times on ultra marathons and just doing insane stuff. And I think a lot of that comes from them us being in an age where they're starting to realize that it's okay to even do that. I mean, women used to be banned from doing a lot of the physical activities that they're allowed to do now. And all of a sudden, they're like, wow, I can actually do this. And just ages and ages of being conditioned to believe that you're the weaker sex, um, that that's done something. And it's time to start to change that. And there's no better, there's no one better to start to change that than dads. Yeah. Like going out and telling their daughters, hey, I expect exactly the same thing from you as I do my sons. And I expect you to expect to be treated the same way as the boys. And pretty soon, you know, you're going to have women realizing that they are actually a lot more capable than they've ever believed. And it's 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 interesting that it just it varies a little bit by culture on on you know what women do because there are cultures where women work just as hard as men. Not ours though. Or boy, did that all come out? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to call you on that yeah, one. Yeah, I was so, listening for a frying well, pan hit in the I, head. So, then <laughs> I, I was talking. What I'm talking about is I read a book recently about uh, an area in Central California, and the author's a cowboy that lives there, and it's called Hungry Valley, and he's talking about basically this area in Central California was was um, mostly. I think Dutch and German immigrants that went there. And there was a big difference in the women from the two different cultures. The, the Dutch, and I may have this wrong, tended to stay inside and manage the house and were, you know, d- d- didn't really leave the kitchen that much or the house that much. Whereas the German immigrants, and I think they're from Bavaria, they would be outside working and would challenge the men and give them a run for their money. Um, and it was just laid culturally that that's how they were laid out. And so we can shift the culture to where everything's more equal, I think. Yeah. Well, an observation that I've made a few times, and, and it, I still really haven't figured it out yet, and this applies to, to gender and to race as well, is take the World War II era. So, you know, a lot of the men were obviously actually on the battle, you know, on the on the, the front line. And so a lot of our, our women were filling in what were male roles back in, you know, the States and England and everywhere else. And then the same thing with race. Like, you know, these, these, all these different races were fighting side by side. And then World War II finishes. And then the 1950s seemed to be the most backward philosophy just in the five years after everything was turned on his head. And I don't understand why we reverted back to such a Victorian mentality after destroying all the the fallacies about gender and race yeah that's crazy it is because there's a um you know a lot of the military doctrine that came after world war ii that was just like hey race doesn't make a difference and and if there is any racism it is going to mess up your unit's integrity and it, it it you know you can't have it and another thing they they said in that doctrine is you need to tell your troops why they're doing stuff you know, and, and currently when people complain about millennials, they're like, oh, they need to know why they're doing stuff. Well, yeah, they do. 
because that's the most efficient way for you to get things done is to have people know, you know, actually know what direction they're working in and why they're doing something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but with the, uh, you know, the positive side now, I think it's, it's awesome is I think, you know, martial arts, especially jujitsu has done this. Definitely CrossFit is it's just blown open the whole gender thing where you've got these incredible female athletes you know, totally outworking, outlifting so many of the men, you know, in the country. And it's empowering women to say like, okay, so, you know, this was a complete bullshit. Basically what we've been taught, you know, that the, yeah. they are incredibly strong. And even like physiologically, if I got my facts right, I think it's almost like a one for one ratio, lower body per, you know, per, for muscle mass for women and men. And I think it's like one to 0.75 upper body. So there's only a slight difference physiologically between men and women and their and their actual abilities if women actually condition themselves in you know the manner that for so long it's been like no you just stay in the house and do housework and do and cook and clean and yeah your body is not going to be in the physical condition of a man who's out like working hard every day yeah exactly but you reprogram that and all of a sudden people are realizing oh Actually, there's a there's a very small divide between both, and then you know now you have extremely effective, you know, female law enforcement officers, female firefighters, and there are some horrible ones as well as there are male. But you yeah, know, again, absolutely. now you're back to just the ones that can, the ones that come, which is how it should yeah, be. Yeah, and and in and in things like that, in law enforcement and the military and stuff, I mean, it's just like you've got to have a set standard, and you've got to just stick to that, and if if you're a male or female and you can make that standard, then we live in America. Like, why should anything be limited to you based on your sex? Um, there but, shouldn't be two standards. But there should only be one standard is my firm belief. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think we talked about it in the last one, Jason, but, you know, mm -hmm. it, it boils down to the tools of the trade. And I think the fire service specifically, we're not wrestling people you we're not doing anything that requires you to be you know a hulk we just need to move this equipment be able to you know pull people out and that kind of thing and that doesn't require a superhero it requires someone who's mentally resilient and has a good physical and strength standard yeah for law enforcement there's there's a real skill to de-escalating situations and women are better at that than men are and, you know, that's why they have tasers and pepper spray. They don't have to go arm wrestle everybody, you know? Well, and there's other jobs that have opened up on the opposite spectrum. Like, it used to be almost exclusively that nurses were women. And now you go into a hospital and a large percentage of the nurses are male. And, you know, a lot of other jobs like that, too. And so, ultimately, like do what you want to do, do what makes you happy. And maybe, you know, have, have a realistic base in that. Maybe you aren't going to be strong enough to be in the military if you're a woman, but if it's what you really want and you work really hard and exercise really hard and try to get yourself there, there's a good chance that you will be. And, you know, maybe that's a hundred percent, not what you want to do. And that's fine. Um, you know, we just, we, we, it's just time to break a lot of these stereotypes that we've had for so long and go ultimately go after what, what you're the best at, what you really truly want to do 
and it doesn't matter. I agree. And I think you also hit on the point about, you know, if it's what you're supposed to do. And I think that's where, you know, military first responders, sometimes you're just not good enough. And I tell people, I would be a horrendous accountant. I mean, I would. I'm terrible, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I, you'd be the guy. I'm like, we got to get this. Let this guy go. He's horrible at math. So you know, and I'm not saying I'm an amazing firefighter or a paramedic, but it's definitely where my heart is. And you know, I've definitely been able to hold the standard up to this point of what's expected for me. But when you're not able to reach that, then it's also either gender, race, you know, religion understanding that that's that individual not being able to perform on that standard. It's nothing personal, but it boils down to who would you want rescuing your child by that point? Absolutely. Right. Well, while we're on the first responder subject, Iris, I'd love to hear uh, about when you were an EMT because uh, I hadn't heard that before. I don't think you mentioned you hadn't told that before on, on a podcast. No, and, and I wasn't for a terribly long time. It was only a couple of years. Um, I became an EMT Back in my early to mid 20s, I guess, Um, kind of the same time I was working at a ranch up here in Washington and um, decided to become an EMT and worked for just a small rural on a small rural ambulance for a while and then was just a first responder on call for the local, um, you know, it's a really rural area. And so you've got at least an hour, basically, to get an ambulance to anyone out in this area that would get hurt. And so there's a number of EMTs kind of scattered around the county that respond to calls. And so that's what I did for quite a while, too. Um, There's a lot of car wrecks. There's, you know, rural roads, bad, bad roads, alcohol, things like that. Um, you know, a lot of times it was responding sometimes, oftentimes by yourself. Like it maybe the other EMTs try to come, but it's a long ways for, for people to everybody spread out miles apart. And so, you know, you may show up on a call by yourself in the middle of the night in some backwoods trailer where you have no idea what's going on and law enforcement isn't there yet. And that, you know, that was an interesting time for me kind of coming to trying to, trying to figure out even how to deal with that as a, as a small female, you know, there were a few calls that I remember going on where I was like kind of everything in my gut said, don't, don't go in there. You're way out in the middle of nowhere. You've got a call that there's, you know, a 25-year-old male having heart troubles or something. And, (laughs) you know, you're in some trailer. You're miles from anything. You know it's going to be 45 minutes before an ambulance gets there or a sheriff's car. And, like, you're, you know, my gut just saying don't don't do it, don't do it because you don't know what you're going to come into. But ultimately I like, I've always had a bit of a sense of adventure. And to me it's like, well, 
you just have to try to be prepared for the situations. It's a, it's a bit different than than working in like a city ambulance or something, you know, where you always have a backup. There's always sheriffs there. There's always it's a much more it was a much more independent way of operating as an EMT. And uh, I, I loved that. I liked that. I don't think that I would be great in like a hospital setting or a really rigid city environment. But I sort of love just never knowing what was going on and if you'd be by yourself or if there'd be other people to help you. Um, and I, I did it for just a few years until I moved down to um, California. And then, you know, we we started farming and doing stuff. And I just I kind of just let it go after that. Right. And was there, did you have any issues dealing with some of the things you saw on top of your early childhood? Or had you by that point developed a resilience where you were no, okay? Oh, you know, up here, probably the hardest thing that I had to deal with is it's a, it's a small community, right? And so everybody knows everybody else. And, um, you know, showing up at car wrecks with people that I knew. I A kid that I went to high school with, you know, that was a friend of mine in high school, crashed into another car and I think three people were killed and then him included and another one severely. It, it, it's, it adds a whole nother level to things when you show up at a horrible scene and it's somebody that you know. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that a few times. Some of the, the volunteers I've had on, uh, you know, everyone they run on, they know, you know, it's a small town and, and that's their mm-hmm. entire community. But no, I mean, I just, I, it gives me a tremendous amount of respect for, for first responders and, and, and all of those guys, just having a bit of experience with it myself. I mean, it certainly wasn't a career for me, um, but gosh, it's such a good thing to know. Like I would encourage any kid that I knew to go become an EMT and do it for a while. It's, it's just a, it's a tremendous way to give back. It's a tremendous way to help people. You get this incredible amount of knowledge to potentially save people's lives. If you're ever in a position where you may need to, um, and it's not, you know, becoming a basic EMT, isn't that, that long of a, process to go through. So I think a lot of people should do it, whether they think it's going to be their career or not. Yeah, I agree. And the skills that you get, we just had one of our members at my CrossFit gym here. I wasn't there that morning, but um, a fair guy, he's actually a Marine, retired Marine. um, And uh, he had a cardiac arrest. And thank goodness, the three, three of the women that were there working out in that class all had done CPR training at some point. Um, yeah, I think a couple of them were actually in the medical community and they absolutely saved their life. We have an AED in the gym and they, they use that and did compressions and he's alive today because of them. So it's such a simple, simple training, especially not even EMT, just the CPR. Oh yeah, first CPR training for sure. Like everybody should do that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, I've seen some of the videos and stuff with, with like quite young kids who have saved people from because their parents sent them to CPR training. And that's awesome. Like you don't have to be very old to do it. My kids actually, I was surprised. 
um, I hadn't even taught them anything about it. And I think their their PE teacher at school has gone over CPR with them. And they they were sitting there one day on the floor. I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're doing we're practicing CPR. And they were full on. They knew how to do like chest compressions and giving breaths and stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's it doesn't take very much to give the basic um you know, what you, what tools in order to save somebody's life. And that's, that's something that. that And they're seven and eight years old. So, you know, they were pretty confident with what they were doing. And I was like, well, okay. Contingency planning and rehearsals is something that we do just because that's just beat into us from the military. So, you know, we've got the emergency numbers. We've run through the drills. It's like, Hey, if you're here and I get hurt, here's what you're going to do. Um, if you come home and we're not home, here's who you're going to call. If we're out in public and we hear a loud gunshot, here's exactly what's going to happen. You know? Yeah. And we have those discussions with them and then run through it. And that's another thing with, with kids. It's like treat your kids like they're – Give your kids some responsibility and treat your kids like they're actually competent because they probably are a lot more so than you give them credit for a lot of the time. And, you know, here Jason's gone a lot. I I ride horses. I'm always breaking a horse of some sort or another. And so she meant to say gentling. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I grew up with cowboy culture. So (laughs) just out there just whipping it with a chain. I'm always gentling a horse that's trying to kill me. Um, And so they could go home from school and I'm not here. And, you know, I've gone over with them like, hey, if 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 you show up and the horse is standing there dragging its reins and I'm nowhere to be found, like there's probably I'm laying somewhere out in the woods and here's the people you need to call. And this, you know, we go over stuff like that with our kids and our daughter particularly. Boy, if you give her some responsibility, she just rises to the occasion. Oh my goodness, yeah. And um, you know, in in doing that, I have no doubt that she she's the kind of person that like if if everything went to hell in the handbasket, if if doomsday came or whatever, like I don't worry about her. She would she would figure it out. She would survive. Um, but it's amazing how much kids will rise up when you do actually give them responsibility. Yeah, no, I agree. And my son's the same. Actually, we had a conversation just today about him trick-or-treating with his friends and his mother was like, he's only 12. And I'm like, but he's, I've for the last couple of years, we've incrementally increased responsibility and he's proven trustworthy every single time to the point where he's earned this independence now. Um, you know, and I think that's it. You give them a role, you give them responsibility. They do, they thrive in that. But if you just baby them and never allow them to do anything, they're going to be lost when they get older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great example. As they step away from you, you need to step back. Absolutely. Well, you just you just made me think of a class thing I'm going to implement in the American school system: sex ed and CPR. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we can you find the the dollies that do both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, it's not it's not a big thing, and it it would help a lot of kids. It would, it would indeed. Okay, um, so I want to transition. You talked about you know the the farming and, and and the kids' independence. So, um, I know Jason, you were talking about your fasting protocol, and you wanted to to tell us about that. Yeah. So. 
turned 50 this year. I'm, I'm feeling better than I did actually even maybe in my 30s. And most of that is due to the lifestyle adjustments that I've made. And I've gotten really disciplined about my sleep. Um, and, you know, and, and, and every day there's new information coming out about how important it is. And, and, and really, if you think of diet and exercise are pillars of good health, sleep is absolutely the foundation. So there's that. But then another thing I, I experimented with when I got into the keto um, and then shifted into paleo when I lost all the weight I wanted to lose was fasting. And I really think that's a huge aspect of how good I feel having to do with the, um, you know, a lot of my joint pain. I had chronic joint pain before. And since I started fasting, that has gone away. Um, and so the protocol that I've kind of been on was uh, I, I started doing a two 24-hour fasts a week. So, you know, have breakfast and then not eat again till breakfast the next day. And what I've shifted into now, which I really like, is I do a 36-hour fast every Monday. Um, and, and so I'll quit eating Sunday night around 6 p.m. And then I don't have anything to eat again till Tuesday morning. Nothing. I'll have water. You know, and then I've got some electrolytes that don't have any sugar in them that I'll mix into my drink because I tend to drink more water on days that I'm fasting and I'll wash all my electrolytes and get a headache. But it's it's not it's not a factor. And then, you know, around around two or three in the, in the afternoon, I'll, I'll transition into ketosis and I'll just get this burst of energy where I feel great and I'll knock a workout out. And then that morning, that Tuesday morning that I wake up after a fast, boy, I feel like a million bucks. Uh, they say that, you know, it, it pulls up your, your uh, uh, growth hormone fivefold. It increases your testosterone. When, when I was, got my testosterone tested, when I was in the middle of the, doing the two 24-hour fasts in a week, they, the, my testosterone was 900. And they're like, are you on test replacement? And I absolutely was not but it popped up my testosterone. Wow. So I can tell you that I, you know, I don't know what it does for other people, but it is amazing for me. Uh, and I think that, you know, some form of interval eating is a great idea. Uh, and that's something we're going to morph to towards. We're discussing it here. We're trying to figure out what looks right. Apparently, the ideal interval is a six and 18. So you eat during a six hour window and faster and 18 has the most health benefits for you. But then what that looks like for us, because it's very important, I think, as a social thing to sit down and eat a meal together, um, which for us is is probably dinner. But we're we're going to modify it so that we probably have that big meal when our kids get home from school and then we're done eating then. But doing the 36-hour fast and going longer than, you know, 30 hours to actually get into some ketosis once a week is is a really good idea. I, I was on several – I was on blood pressure meds before. I was on uh, – um, oh, what was the other one I was taking? I was taking a pump inhibitor for my heartburn. I don't take any of that stuff anymore. Uh, and a lot of the pain – that I was feeling in my joints, which I believe was a result of inflammation, 
went away when I started fasting. And uh, yeah, there you have it. So I think it's a good idea. Yeah. Get some. Well, I had a guy, or two guys, Phil White and then Dr. Frank Merritt, and they wrote a book called 17 Hour Fast. And it lines up pretty much exactly what you're saying, the eight and um, six and 18. But this, they found as well the intermittent part was a very important part too. And it sounds like a buzzword, but again, to me, it just makes sense. Like we, as a species a long time ago, probably didn't find the exact food we wanted at 8 a.m. to midday, five and, and eight. So some days you probably had more opportunities to eat. And a lot of times you probably had a smaller window. So, um, but I've inadvertently kind of tripped over this myself where once I came off shift, I started working out at the 8 a.m. class at my CrossFit. So we have dinner six or seven. And uh-huh. I used to wake up like, well, I'm awake now. Let's shove food down my throat because you need to fuel the body. Well, now I go to the gym. I walk my son to this bus stop. I walk my dogs about a couple of miles. Then I go to the gym, work out. So by the time I come back, it's about 10. So that's like a 14-hour fast without even trying, without even feeling even remotely hungry by that point. And it's crazy that when you get that philosophy out of your mind that you need to constantly be eating, especially in a role like yourself where you are performing at an elite level as a tactical athlete and you don't need to be eating all the time it's it's almost mind-blowing you're like so everything i've been told was was kind of wrong like i'm functioning just fine on a, on a lot smaller eating window and really rea- in reality a lot smaller volume of food in itself yeah you know it's the yeah because the the Predominantly, everyone used to say, hey, you need to eat every you need to eat six small meals a day instead of three big ones. Um, And and then your insulin was just spiked all day. But uh, lately, since, you know, I've been really trying to practice mindfulness and be aware of everything, I'm noticing that a lot of times that I would eat prior, I wasn't hungry. I was bored. And so out of boredom, I just wanted to have a different flavor, you know, of something in my mouth and, and a most times I I could probably get away with eating in a four hour window. And as I apply more discipline, that's where I'm going to wind up because the rest of the time I'm not, I'm not hungry. It's boredom that I I'm just sticking something in my mouth. Yeah. And there is, there's definitely that emotional connection with food. I was talking to a guy, Dr. Michael Greger, who's a plant-based advocate and physician. Um, and his whole thing was, you know, when when people get upset or they break up with a boyfriend, they don't binge on broccoli, you know, and it's, it's absolutely true when you think about it. It's ice cream and chocolate. And so, yeah, that emotional attachment, once you can break that, totally frees you for starting to understand that you're eating for nutrition rather than, as you said, boredom or some other emotional attachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to have to try binging on broccoli now. <laughs> 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 I might feel, feel upset. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, let's say I've, I've never seen anyone break into the refrigerator at 2 a.m. and, you know, find them with a zucchini in their mouth. Uh, no. <laughs> all right. Well, then the other thing that we wanted to talk about, and I'll make sure we hit all these points, is the generalization. And again, I've talked about this a lot. I completely agree with you. But what is it that you see going on in the world with that particular thing? So here's here's what I see. I, I've just applied to myself. Uh, I, I've decided to stop making generalizations, and by that I mean I'm not, I'll never say, oh, the libtards or the liberals. And anytime you take a generalization and put it on someone, 
you're not really you're dehumanizing them. It's not a good idea. And then I, I, I have some really, really good friends that their views are left of where I'm at. But when I sit down and I'm actually have a discussion with them and listen to what they're saying, we're, we're only offset by maybe 8%, if that. Whereas, you know, I, I, uh, the media definitely today is trying to drag us to either extreme, but with lies. And, and if, if you look at the news outlets, they're playing to cognitive biases for either side and, and I've seen straight up lies from the news outlets that play to my cognitive biases than when I'm actually look into them. And I know that the other side is lying and they're just pulling everybody out there because that's what gets them ratings. And you just you, you have to step back from it and not use a generalization. So instead of saying, oh, that guy over there, it's a lot. Le- you're a lot less likely to hate someone if. You say that person over there is that or or Jerry thinks this instead of saying a liberal thinks this or a conservative thinks this, you know? Yeah, um, completely. Yeah. So that that's that's just one of those things I've come through on uh, on just just a path to, to exercise a little humility, say that I don't have all the answers and uh, move forward and try to get better. You know, at 30, I thought I had the world figured out. And then at 40, when I look back at myself at 30, I was like, man, you had it wrong. Now at 50, I realize I don't have things figured out. And so I just need to exercise humility, step back and, and, and take a look at things and collect information from a broad spectrum and then make decisions based on that, you know. Be conscious of our biases and our convictions that, you know, maybe are wrong and always be trying to move forward with better ideas about things. You shut down conversation when you start generalizing. Mm -hmm. And back to communication being key with everything. You need to keep the dialogue open. At, at, at the same point, to get better, we have to train each other what's acceptable in, in, in public and what isn't. So it's not like I've become so wishy-washy that I wouldn't take a stand over something. So if like someone made a derogatory comment about somebody for whatever reason, whether it was their you know preference, religion, gender, I don't care, I would correct that person and say, hey, man, that's not cool. And uh, and that's okay. That's a solid foundation, I think, coming from that angle of it, but but still not fall victim to my biases and make generalizations in in, in other ways. Yeah, because I, I had the same observation. So I have to say one of the things about Britain I'm very proud of is the BBC. You turn it on. Hey, here's what happened. Next next story. Here's what happened. That's it. There's no split screen with four douchebags all arguing with each other <laughs> left or right that's not news that's just i want to watch an argument i'll go you know turn on espn and watch 15 hours of sports center of them arguing with each other too but mm-hmm. um you know the reality is it boils down to is there kindness behind whatever you're being told and is it something can you you know you can fix like if you can take action then don't argue with other people start addressing it 
Like with the, mm-hmm. the, the healthcare thing, for example, you know, whatever people believe in, I come from a country where we had national health. I think it's starting to, to, to decay sadly a little bit now because it's, it's starting to move towards the American model. But fundamentally, that was everyone chipping in. So everyone in, in that nation had healthcare. That came from a place of kindness. And as a fit 45-year-old, I don't have any problem continuing to do that, even though I'm not getting my quote-unquote money's worth because I'm not sick. But you know, the best thing about that is you're not sick. So I'm more than happy to, to you know, allow my tax dollars to help the elderly, the infirm, the, the, the young, so that we create a much stronger, healthier nation. You know, but this, this, this arguing left and right and, oh, that's socialized this or, you know, I worked hard for my money. You're not getting a penny. This, what are you doing? You're not fixing anything. You're not helping all the people that we see dying in our country. So let's reel it back into, like you said, the middle ground where we have an issue. We have 85 year old men and women working in Walmart because they can't afford the health insurance. Does that not bother you a little bit? That's what it boils down to those conversations. And I think you're right. Most people, if they're reeled into the middle, will go, oh, shit, we actually agree with each other. Yeah, and 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 there could be, I think we could have a really good discussion on where the solutions lie and whether they lie with government or the private sector fixing things. Um, obviously, I think the the government is going to have to lay out a framework so that the private sector, which is is driven by profits, but, you know, in, in the course of one of the things I do with Echelon Front, I was just speaking with a, uh, a, a healthcare provider and, and they're very honest. They're like, hey, 80% of the costs are with 5% of the people, but we found they're looking at ways to incentivize those 5% of the people to make lifestyle choices that will then decrease the uh, the you know the amount that they have to go to the doctor. Yeah, over. Yeah, I mean that's my thing is with the system as, as at home. If you have a system, and I don't, I mean, yeah, we all are fully aware of of governments, you know, running things. Period. Fire fire departments, whatever it is, but whichever organization you have, if you have an environment where there's a pot. And you actually save money by putting things in place that make people healthier, not prescribing meds to those people, but I don't know, actually putting clean food in schools and removing soda, for example, then, you know, you are not going to be dipping into that pot. So the, you know, the problem I have, and, and this, you know, obviously it's not, not a healthcare debate, but if we have a system, for example, where there's profit and people being sick, that's a horrible system wherever in the world you are. So all mm-hmm. these systems should be in place to protect kid, kids from, you know, from uh, molestation, to, to teach kids how to cook, how to eat, you know, how to be safe around firearms, CPR. I mean, all these things that are going to minimize all the, the, the side effects of not doing that correctly when, when they get older. Definitely. Oh, yeah. And then or the older people that are, you know, just help them to make the lifestyle choices that that'll fix stuff. And then, you know, medicine comes in behind that. But there's there's I, yeah, that's all good stuff. And coming from the place place of kindness to make sure that we get it done is, is absolutely necessary. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm, I'm about to transition to some closing questions. But before we do, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to make sure that we do? I think, I think we, we did pretty good. It. I think we hit them all. <laughs> I 
<laughs> that was a, a good two-hour conversation as well. Okay, so then I will do the first one. So as, as last time, Jason, is there, for both of you, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different? So, yeah, mine is a book called Trees of Power. And it is written by this guy, Akiva Silver. And it's, it's, it's just fired up about planting more trees and, and taking a positive steps to make the environment better. And I got, I really enjoyed this book. I bought 10 or 11 copies that I've given out to friends because I, I liked it so much. There's a new book that I want to recommend that just came off the printing press and it's by a Brit and it's called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse by Charlie Mackesy. And it is a book all about kindness. And it's a really beautiful, lovely little book that I think everybody would appreciate and take something from. Fantastic. I've never heard of that one, but I will definitely put that on my Amazon list then. All right, then the next question, is there a movie that you love? Uh, well, the, we just watched a really awesome documentary that falls back on this thing for the promise to my daughter. What was that? Oh, the um, the Eagle Huntress. The Eagle Huntress. Which... It's a Mongolian. It's about a girl in Mongolia who, you know, they, they hunt with eagles in Mongolia. And um, it's a documentary and goes into how this eagle hunting has been exclusively a male sport forever in Mongolia. And this young girl wants to become an eagle huntress. And um, with, uh, you know, support of her dad and her grandpa and a lot of naysayers who are like, she doesn't have any business doing this and she's not strong enough and she doesn't know what she's doing. She goes out there and just crushes it with the eagle hunting. So it's really a sweet story and great, like, girl power story. All around, it's a good story. Yeah, and beautiful because cinematography, too. She, she did that with the support of her grandfather and her dad. And that's how, you know, things that we're going to get there and open everything up. Breaking the cycle again. Yeah. Beautiful. I remember actually seeing that. Um, I think it came on Netflix sometime, and it was one of the ones I wanted to watch, and I think I just yeah, forgot about it. Yeah, it's not a new movie. It's been out for a couple of years, but we just got around to watching it recently, and it's great. Excellent. All right. Well, I'll make sure I watch that as well. Um, so next question. Uh, is there a person that you recommend to come on the podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Chris Voss. He wrote a book called Never Split the Difference. And he was like one of the FBI's lead negotiators, and he has a book on negotiation. And I think he would make a really interesting guest. He's got a lot of really interesting stories in this book. Um, and so I think that might be something to look out to. And I, it's, it's, it, it'll be pretty easy for you to get a hold of him, I believe. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Anyone to add to that, Aris? Uh, not that I can think of right off the top of my head. Okay, perfect. That sounds like a good one. It does indeed. All right, so next question for both of you. What do you do to decompress when you are not you know, doing the things that we've discussed today? Oh, gosh, for me, it's really all about just getting out into the outdoors, whether I'm riding a horse or just going for a hike or something. Um, that's 
that's really just key for me. And if I don't do that for a little while, I like start to feel myself getting really frustrated and, and, you know, not being as clear of thought as I should be. And, and I'm like, Oh, I need to get outside. Yeah. How many times that that's been the answer to that question? And we're basically 250 episodes in now that is that simple, you know, but so many people live in so removed you know most people jason and i made a very conscious decision to live right on the edge of the wilderness or right in the middle of it (laughs) but you know look at how many people almost never get any nature at all now other than maybe like a walk through a park or something yeah and even then i mean i wonder there's so much stress and anxiety and just crippling problems people are dealing with yeah, I agree. And even just, just the, the act of being barefoot, you know, on grass, on the beach, people are just bundled up even when they are outside. So just being exposed yeah. to nature in a more holistic way. Yeah, for me, is is just like identifying, hey, I just need to turn my mind off and slow down and stop and just be pre- to force myself to be present in the moment. Um, oddly enough, it, it, it maybe it's counterintuitive, but some good punk rock or speed metal – just kind of switches my brain off. I'll listen to some music and uh, that that helps. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. So the very last thing then, um, where can people find you guys online and how can they reach out to you? I'm on Instagram at all the wild places and Twitter at only Iris Gardner. And I... I'm at Instagram at jason.n.gardner, and that's that's really the best place to, to stay in contact. I found the other social media places just, just to be clunky, and I'm going to start moving myself away from them and just stick with Instagram. Brilliant. Over. Yeah, that's my favorite one. That's, unless it's something long form where Facebook is a better platform and Twitter, I still don't understand. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't understand Twitter either. Twitter's a mess. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, I just want to thank you so much. It's been such a diverse, you know, array of topics. And Iris, obviously, I want to thank you so much for your courageous, you know, storytelling of what you went through. And, and I agree 100% that it it needs to be told so people realize that they're not alone and you know they can either tell their story or at least reach out to someone else who, who's been in the same you know case as them yeah thanks a lot for for um you know having allowing a really open discussion about that james because it is something more people need to hear and i'm going to keep talking about it because i know firsthand from so many people who've reached out to me that it has a really big impact and so you know, to me now, it's just a, it's an obligation to do, to keep talking about it. And I hope it inspires other people to do the same. And, you know, closing out, I, I want to double tap that stuff that you just posted two days ago on Instagram with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman analyzing all the suicides in the military. And, and so because they've looked at them all, and they're like, hey, combat isn't the factor. The one commonality they have is lack of sleep and alcohol. And so, you know, if you're out there and you're struggling, the first thing that you should fix is your sleep. And then take a hard look at whether or not, you know, your consumption of alcohol is something that's healthy. 
Yeah, no, and I agree 100%. It's funny, that was the first conversation we did and I was looking to to find a soundbite to put out there and, and that was absolutely spot on. And, and I had a conversation with a, a, a lieutenant I used to work with in one of my departments before and he kind of just hit a, a kind of mental health wall and we discussed that and and some of the options obviously are going to administration, going to days, but another one is just saying, I think I think I've given enough. You know, maybe it's time to transition, you know, like you did from the SEALs to Echelon Front or, you know, whatever it is. But I think that's another area people need to understand is if you cannot control your work schedule and some of these um, these uh, occupations that we're in and you can't maybe transition to a day job or something, then we are all pre-programmed to think that you have to be a first responder for 25, 30 years. You know, if if if... There's no way around it and you keep finding yourself spiraling down, then turn around and say, I gave you 15, you know, 10, 15 years of my life, 20 years. I'm going to go do something now so I can sleep in my own bed, be with my kids and, and, and fight this. Because yeah, I think that that feeling of helplessness a lot of times drives them towards that very, very dark place. That and our culture has driven us towards uh, strength equalizing, not needing sleep. And so no one really pays attention to how important it is or, uh, you know, how to do it right. And they're not disciplined with uh, their their sleep hygiene or any of that. Yeah. Yeah. And for everyone listening to Doc Parsley is absolutely the the episodes you need to listen to. Start with episode six and work your way from there. So, all right. Well, again, thank you both so much. An, an amazing conversation. And um, I'm hoping next year I can actually make it to the, the Northwest and finally shake your hand face to face. Sounds good. We got a spot for you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Iris. Thanks, James. Thanks, Appreciate James. it.